The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB. Raising a glass to celebrate APSA's Pan-African excellence. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this Wednesday night. Viv Governor, our market commentator this evening. Leave it up to him to explain what happened to the currency, what happened to markets. Markets have rallied nicely on the day, but it came at the cost of the currency. We'll pick up with Koki Koiman in just a moment. Koki is an executive director at Denka Capital. I spotted something interesting this morning I thought you should be aware of. I don't think it's got necessarily got any massive impact on the companies we're going to talk about this evening, but certainly it's something I would like to draw your businesses are and how one one thing happens on one side of the world it can have an impact negative or positive on the opposite side of the planet so we'll pick up on that this evening as we chat to Koki Kwaiman um, at uh, about in a few moments time also this evening Neil Hill the president of the Ford Motor Company for the Africa region Neil's going to join us to talk all about Ford Motor Company it's a hundred years since they've been manufacturing in South Africa that is significant on its own but next year they begin with electric car making or certainly the Ford Ranger will get electric engines so we'll pick up on that one and there's lots more to come. Lots more to come. Uh, Velma Corcoran, who is the regional lead for Middle East and Africa at Airbnb, will join us. We've got Rich Mulholland at Missing Link, our consumer ninja Wendy Nola. And more. There's even more than that, believe it or not, here on The Money Show this Wednesday. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. These things happen. I apologize for that. I was explaining, and I don't know when you lost me, so I'll go back to the beginning. It was a very good place to start. Something that caught my attention this morning, the Chinese government trying to push the world's biggest insurer, Ping An, to invest in the country's battered property sector. Ping An pushing back, of course. Now, why would we care about the fact that the thing that is causing most distress in China is the property sector, property developers in particular? Um, and of course, Ping An happens to be the world's biggest insurance company, the Chinese government also not a fan of people who say no to them. Occasionally, people disappear in China doing that. Well, Discovery, listed on the JSE, could be your health insurer, is an investor in a company called Ping An Health, which is part of the mighty empire of Ping An. Koki Koiman with us this evening, Executive Director, Denka Capital. Would Ping An being obliged to invest in a Chinese property company like Country Garden, one of the distressed players in China, have any impact on discovery itself? Gorky, good evening. Hi, hi, Bruce. Well, interesting story, yes, and, and the bottom line answer is no, but for background for listeners, it's actually interesting. The, the, the problem in China has been excessive development in property since, in fact, 2004, 5, 6, and infrastructure for that matter, and developers there, as in many countries, take initial deposit, but the funding of in the building comes from sales. It's actually a form of a pyramid scheme. Uh, so when now the last few years demand for new properties fallen away, the developers haven't had enough cash to complete the properties they already taken deposits on, and that's led to a lot of un- unhappiness and unrest. And and a lot of these companies, Evergrande being one, has been defaulting on the debt obligations, and that had quite big ramifications also on growth in China. Okay. 
So um, now the rumor started, uh, in fact, must be yesterday, I don't know exactly when it started, that um, the government is now uh, wants to create breathing space for developers and uh, asking the large insurers to take controlling stakes. Now, Ping on itself has, has vehemently, well, I said out a, set up, sent out a press statement denying it. And, and I would... I would believe it. And as you know, often a company is forced to say there's no truth in this rumor and then later it, it does become true and I just are not allowed to comment at that stage. But but there are a couple of things in China that are important. Firstly, insurance companies are by law not allowed to own controlling stakes in develop, um, property developers. So the government will have to change <laughs> that regulation. And secondly, Pin yeah. On has actually actively for the past few years been selling off its property exposure. And in fact, also, yeah. it recently sold the last stake it still had in Country Garden. They actually still had a 5% stake, and that must have cost them a bit, but they sold that. And the total property exposure is now less than 4.5% of a, a total $1.6 trillion they have in assets. It's a massive insurer. So I would say um, unlikely. Why? How does it affect? Discovery, well, Discovery, and as you mentioned, Discovery have a JV with being on uh, in Discovery Health, and that is owned 24.9% by Discovery and basically 75% by by Country Garden. Uh, So, you know, Discovery won't be affected by whatever happens in Ping On. Ping On is basically a massive. and uh, but it, it's an interesting rumor that it, it does show the extent of the problems China's having in its property sector, but but nothing to do with discovery. No, I mean that's really interesting, and I'm glad you clarified that, Corky, because I saw this and I went, hold on a second, discovery. A lot of shareholders were grumpy with discovery when it followed its rights in Ping An Health, but eight, eighteen months ago, and they they added uh, to the investment in Ping An Health to maintain that nearly twenty five percent stake because they see that as a potential growth engine into the future, particularly for their vitality business and also potentially from an insurance perspective. But this does go, I think, to show just how deep and dark the problems in the Chinese property sector are. The Chinese government is running short of ideas and sees the enormous capital pools that the insurance companies like Ping An have got. And like all governments around the world, our own included, very keen that others sort of bail them out of the mess they help create. Quite correct. They've, they've already uh, forced the banks to actually lend a lot of the distressed, uh, lend to the distressed uh, companies. And obviously the government owns large parts, controlling parts of, of the largest banks. So it's using that. The problem of the Chinese government, a bit like us here, and for different reasons, their local governments are, are in very bad financial shape because of they've also funded all these developments. So China, in terms of financial health, uh, doesn't look that good. And the Chinese debt to GDP is also one of the highest in the world. And, and, and that's why yeah, a lot of investors have, have lost their appetite uh, for an investment in China because the problems they're going through. I mean, it's still a massive country that can still do well, but, but they're going to have to work through this. And, and this type of rumor, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some truth in it that they are looking at doing things like that. Uh, but they'll have to change a few regulations, which is quite easy for the Chinese government to do. Um, but yeah, for discovery itself, it's actually, I think it's still a very good option to have to be in a JV with your largest uh, life insurer in China. 
Well, largest life, largest insurer in the world, as far as I can tell. Yep. I've often asked Adrian Gould this question, and I don't—he he never answers it directly. But I also wonder whether or not Pingan Health could actually be the equivalent one day of Nasparis's ten cent for discovery. Certainly, the market's not pricing that in by any stretch of the imagination. I wonder if that's wishful thinking. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all a, a problem. Is it's a slow, it's a slow burn. And uh, it, it's taken longer than anticipated, uh, but the Chinese are a very health-conscious nation. And, um, uh, you know, being on uh, is big and is successful. But, you know, just from our own um, research on, on Prudential, we're quite big in Hong Kong and, and AIA, uh, insurance sales have also suffered uh, in China because of the pressure the consumers under. So, you know, the postpones all these, these, these longer tail um, upsides, but, but certainly potential is there. I agree. I think, I think it, and that's why discovery is actually marginally expensive for what it is delivering. And I think that, that's, that's market trying to price that in. Thank you, Koki Koiman. Koki is an executive director and portfolio manager at Denka Capital with his finger on the pulse of global issues when it comes to financial services, particularly banks and insurance companies. Koki Koiman, thank you very much for joining us. The Money Show. The Markets. No, we're not getting to markets yet. And do don't get excited. Don't get ahead of yourself. Do not be so and anticipatory. We're changing. We're flexing as we go along because we've just spotted a really interesting tale on Tech Central's website. And I'm, I'm sure this will be common knowledge fairly soon that the fitness device manufacturer Fitbit withdrawing from the South African market. Now, it's in line with Google's decision. Google is the parent company of Fitbit to not sell consumer hardware products in this country. Jan Vermeer is the editor at My Broadband, picking up his phone this evening for us. Thank you, Jan. Um, this comes as a bit of a surprise. I suppose guys like you in the know were anticipating it. Uh, no, not at all. This is quite a shock. Oh. Um, uh, yeah, no, the, the, you know, the, the, the fact that Google doesn't sell devices in South Africa is, uh, has, been a, has been a long-standing bugbear of mine. Um, I would really like for Pixel devices to be on sale in South Africa. But um, to to have uh, you know to take devices that have you know that have been sold that have distributors locally and then just decide to pull out that's uh, it, it's um, it, it was indeed a shock. It's it's not anticipated at all. Why would they? I mean, Fitbits are at the affordable end of fitness devices, at least the entry level devices are. Um, why is this market not attractive enough for them? Um, are they having their pecs and chivette and red row moments? Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Uh, it, 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 is, it is sad to see, but it's difficult to know exactly what the motivation is behind the decision because they don't report local numbers. And so we don't, you know, um, the, and the retailers themselves are, are quite skittish uh, about revealing numbers and, uh, and GFK are also cagey about revealing uh, the numbers to journalists. And so the only people who know for sure what's, what's going on behind the scenes here will be the guys in the industry who have seen what's happened with sales. So, you know, uh, 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 you know I think the, the, the obvious answer is that they've not seen the sales they would have liked in the market uh, for whatever reason. And, and so they've pulled out. Uh, but there's another option, which is that sales were fine for the size of South Africa's market, which is relatively small. Um, and, and of that small market, a very small proportion can actually afford devices like these. Um, but is, is that Google 
is unifying its its um, and simplifying its its uh, gadget or its devices uh, section. And so now, because they haven't gone through the effort to launch Pixel in South Africa, so you know your 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 standard your your regular Google devices are not available in South Africa, and now Fitbit is kind of just being lumped in with uh, Google's first-party devices and and being pulled out of the country because. Google itself doesn't have local distribution, local support, um, and everything that goes with that, um, you know, repairs, warranties, exchanges, all that stuff. That's going to be a pain for anybody who owns one of the devices or bought one yesterday because, um, yeah, trying to get any service on the damn things is going to be a problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly doesn't uh, build confidence in the brand and, and I think leaves a sour taste um, like if, if uh, you know, if, if I were to to think, oh, you know, um, Google Google has a device in the market, or um, if so, if Google goes and buys someone in future who is available in South Africa, I would then suddenly think twice about mm. about whether to support that brand in future. Once again, we're such a vanishingly small market. I don't think Google even features on Google's balance sheet. But like, um, but certainly as a, as a local consumer. I would think twice uh, about um, buying anything to do with Google when it comes to tech and gadgets as a result of this, um, uh, because you don't know if they're just going to pull the plug on something that yeah. used to be distributed locally. Jan Vermeulen, thank you. Edited my broadband on the line to us from Centurion, stepping into the breach that was left by um, the man who broke the story. Um, the man who broke the story, of course, Duncan McLeod at Tech Central. Um, uh, he posted the story a little earlier. And yeah, Fitbit pulling out of South Africa. So credit to him for the story. Thanks to Jan Vermeulen for helping us understand it better. We did ask Duncan McLeod, of course, to come on the radio and he sent us a message. Sorry, I'm in the roof fixing my geezer. How talented is that guy? <laughs> Duncan McLeod. I hope the geezer works and get a nice hot shower because things are dusty up there. Uh, global wine production. This is interesting. Global wine production is falling and is likely to drop to a six-decade low in 2023. The International Organization of Vine and Wine says poor weather in the world's biggest wine producing areas is to blame and it will lead to a 7% drop this year, making it the worst yield since 1961. The EU, of course, produces 60% of the world's wine and almost every country in the Union that produces wine is seeing a decline. Spain and Italy are down in double digits thanks to drought. What's interesting here is France has now kicked Italy off the number one spot in terms of wine production volumes. Italy was the biggest producer. France is now the biggest producer of wine. I think intuitively I would have said France is the biggest, but no, it's, well, it is. But um, it's only the biggest because France has seen a decline this year. Droughts, fire also hitting the Southern Hemisphere's biggest producer, Chile. They're going to see production fall by as much as 20%. Australia will fall by a quarter. South Africa's down by not as much, but it's not been a great year for wine in South Africa. We may have beaten New Zealand at cheap sharing rugby and cricket this year, but New Zealand has actually seen improved production of wine, as has the United States. There's um, still an oversupply, a glut of wine in the world. The French government spending about 2 billion rand, destroying surplus stocks because demand globally also for wine, surprisingly enough, because it's so blim and delicious, is also falling. Um, South Africa, though, seems to be holding up. Okay, so far this year. The Money Show. The Markets. 
Viv Governor, Portfolio Manager at Rand Swiss with us this evening. And Viv Governor, a nice rebound after yesterday's dreadful plummeting collapse in the value of shares. And it's all to do, and it's so boring, but this is the thing that's driving us at the moment. If Jerome Powell says something that is positive for markets, they go up and current the Rand strengthens. If a couple of his colleagues then say, well, he didn't really mean that, then things go the other way. And we're waiting again for Jerome Powell to say something positive or negative just a little bit later. Well, most certainly. I mean, I think he's kind of like, uh, it's always been the case that uh, this Federal Reserve chairman is, is moving markets around. Uh, but I think right now, because of just at the levels that the interest rates are at and the impact that, you know, it turns out will have in terms of uh, the global markets, uh, this is one of the most pivotal, you know, times for the Federal Reserve chairman out there. And his words are like he's going to change markets uh, one way or the other. Yep, so that's probably 8 o'clock this evening. That's traditionally the time that he does it. Um, and so, yeah, we watched the space. Certainly, it's been a very good couple of days for markets and the currency. Yesterday was a was an absolute disaster. Uh, today, a small recovery coming through, which is good news. Um, take, take me through the Investec update. That came through before breakfast time this morning. Um, Investec up 6% on the day following that uh, statement. 112 rand, 18 cents. Market was clearly satisfied. Yes, they were saying basically, uh, you know, uh, long growth and high interest rates. And you must understand, of course, when the interest rates are high, banks basically are effectively sellers of money. And, you know, uh, they're able to have a little extra when they do see, uh, uh, you know, a bit of uh, high interest rates in there. So their their margins go up. And they also think that, you know, acquisitions are also, uh, you know, looking reasonably well. Uh, I, I think that is you know, kind of interesting in the current environment that we are seeing. We are seeing a number of banks internationally under quite a bit of pressure. And the fact that the investor is coming out with some reasonable, you know, numbers here is, you know, obviously a, a positive. Yep, it's coming through nice and strong, which is good to see. Then AVI, um, the makers of Baker's Biscuits, Syro Coffee, importers of very, very expensive sh- You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Welcome to The Money Show. Sorry about that. But yes, certainly AVI came out with a good uh, update this morning. The share price up 4%, 74 rand, 18 cents on AVI. We also saw gains for Discam, for Nuspatch, for Process, for Richmond. They are beneficiaries of a weaker current. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. The Money Show brought to you by CIB raising a glass is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. You can give us a call on Audible one 702 You can also uh, get hold of me via Twitter. I still call it that because, hey, it's a long relationship. Um, it's not an ex-relationship. Uh, at Bruce Business or WhatsApp on 072-702-1702 here on The Money Show this evening. I don't know how much trouble you need to be in when not even a blockbuster like the movie Barbie can dig you out of a hole. Uh, despite earning a record $1.5 billion for Warner Brothers Discovery, the company has still reported a $417 million loss for the quarter. That's much worse than forecasts. Imagine if they didn't have the Barbie movie. Company's revenue, just under $2 billion for the quarter, so therefore the Barbie movie made up three quarters of their revenues. 
um, and was all down to one movie. But that movie didn't have broad enough shoulders or big enough shoulder pads to carry uh, Warner Brothers' discovery. Admittedly, the drop-off in advertising didn't help. It didn't help that the Writers Guild of America and the union representing 160,000 actors halted most TV and movie production for months. But certainly uh, not a happy environment for um, the company that produced Barbie, Barbie, which earned them record revenues from the world of movies, simply not doing enough to lift the entire business. On your next money show, we've got Warren Ingram at Galileo Capital. How to get out of debt and stay out of debt as you take steps toward financial freedom. Also, small business advice. Plus, I will help you digest SAPI, the paper and packaging group's financial results, as well as all the other big money, finance and business, some serious ones too, stories of the day. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Let's talk uh, Airbnb because Airbnb, of course, is such a popular app around the world. But there have been some interesting comments recently uh, from the founder of Airbnb, Brian Chesky, saying Airbnb is broken. That's quite a strong statement by the founder of a business. He did say in an interview last week, we never fully built the foundation. It had four pillars when we needed to have 10 I suppose it's hardly surprising that they didn't build the business with 10 pillars because it was built on a whim. I mean, really, it was. The backstory of Airbnb is one of those great legends that will go down in history as one of the most astonishing examples of brilliance on behalf of its founders, who I think were in San Francisco. They had a flat, and they realized that when people came to places like San Francisco for events and things, there simply weren't enough affordable hotel rooms. And so people were either staying away or were doing all kinds of creative things. And so they blew up some air mattresses and popped them in their lounge and made it known that this was space that was available. And when that space became available, people booked it. And they went, you're coming into our house, you've got you know, no privacy, you're sharing our space and you're willing to do it? Yeah, well, if the price is right. If the price is right, of course we will do it. And suddenly this thing spread and spread and spread and grew. Certainly all the hype seems to have evaporated, certainly in the South African market, uh, with respect to Airbnb. And that's probably a good thing because it suggests that there may be a sustainable business model as Brian Chesky and his fellow executives re-engineer the business that he describes as broken. Velma Corcoran is the regional head for Airbnb in the Middle East and Africa. Do you feel a bit, Velma, like a mechanic who has been told to fix the aeroplane while it's flying? Because when the boss says the business I built is broken, broken. Um, he's going to expect you to do fancy things like that, I suspect. I definitely don't feel like a mechanic that's um, fixing the airplane in the sky. I think, you know, what Brian was trying to say when he said that is that our mission is really to perfect our core service. And over the last three years, we have released over 350 updates, really talking to how do we make the platform as simple and as easy for guests and hosts to use. And actually today we've got a new update, which is sort of the next chapter in that. 
Uh, part of part of the, the issues with with Airbnb and with Brian Chesky saying it's broken um, is the fact that there are seven million properties on the Airbnb network around the world. That makes a huge variance. It makes booking quite scary because you simply don't always know what you're going to get. Um, there is a huge variance in terms of the the feedback and the reports and the honesty of the uh, of, of the hosts. All of those things is makes it challenging. So how are you getting around the obstacle? of the charlatans who use your platform to promote substandard product? So this update is very much focused on reliability. As you say, we have over 7 million listings on the platform, which is a good thing, right? Because there's lots of variety and a lot of difference. But what we really want is people to make sure that um, the reality of what they're booking meets their expectation. And so there's three main kind of um, updates that we've shipped today. So the first is really about something called guest favorites. So it makes it as easy. So what we've done is we've got a new category and we're able to surface all listings that have got an over 4.9 out of 5 review score, which is actually 20% of our listings in South Africa. So it's going to be really, really easy to find those high quality listings. And then the second thing is that we've re-engineered the way that you can look at reviews. So that you make it so that you can dig a little bit deeper. So you're able to sort by recency. You're able to sort by rating. You can see the distribution of the reviews. So you can see maybe it was just one review that's kind of thrown it out. And then you can also see who left the review. So based on size of the group, length of stay. Um, yeah. so you have a lot more detail to know exactly what to expect. Uh, and, and does that create an encumbrance? Because, you know, again, when this thing started out, it was terribly easy. You could do it with one hand. You could be drinking a slushy or smoothie or whatever you with one hand and booking your holiday on in the other hand. And yes, it wasn't perfect, but it certainly it was quick and fairly easy. Is this going to create sort of greater obstacles, perhaps, for the ease of use? No, absolutely not. I think that this is intended to make it easier to book. So it's easier for you to kind of search by what the guest favorites are. It's easier for you to, to dig into the reviews to make sure that exactly what you're booking is what you expect. And then the other thing that we've launched um, today is actually to make it much easier for our hosts. Um, we know that hosts that have got more information are 20% more likely to get booked. But sometimes I'm a host myself. Sometimes it's a bit difficult to actually update that information and we now have a listing tab, which makes it much easier to update your information. And we've also using AI. So, for example, with photographs, um, AI can identify the photographs based on rooms in your home and actually profile them for you to tell listing stories. When you are giving preference to the top third or top 27% of your, of your hosts, the people who average 4.9 on the rating scale, does that have the effect of shaking out the rats and mice at the bottom of the, uh, at the, bottom of the, of the heap? So I think what it does is it really incentivizes quality. It makes sure that hosts, so hosts will realize that to, if they deliver better quality, they're more likely to get booked, um, which hopefully will mean that it's not just the top 20% that become guest favorites, but actually 40 or 50% of 
our listings actually fall into that category. So I think what it's doing is that we're incentivizing quality on the platform. But if you're not in the top 2 million of the 7 million, you're going to get fewer bookings. The odds of you getting the sort of rating to get you into that top uh, that top segment begin to diminish fairly quickly, don't they? Or is there an algorithm that can solve that? I think there's a lot you can do um, as a host. And I'm actually talking from kind of personal experience. So if you're sure. a new host, you're able to, we now have a tab which features new listings. So you can see who's new on the platform. You know, you can play around with with discounts. So you can give longer term stay discounts. You can give early booking discounts. Um, and, you know, and, and also what, you know, that, that, that those scores get updated relatively regularly. Also, you know, you know, ultimately, you know, what people, what, what people want is that um, you just want your expectations to be matched. So potentially if you go in at a lower price, you're likely to have, you know, less expectations are kind of around the stay. So it's really just about, you know, what we want to do is to make sure that what guests are expecting meets the reality of their stay. Very good. What is your Airbnb rating, by the way? Um, I'm assuming you've got one property. What is your rating as the Not- regional lead for Middle East and <laughs> Africa at Airbnb? Well, you've told us you've got an Airbnb. What's your rating? I managed to achieve my career highlight recently that I am now a super host on Airbnb. So I can literally put my money where my mouth is. And my rating is over 4.9. Okay, just checking. I was curious. Um, how? Okay, what are the top three tips you can give to Airbnb hosts? As an Airbnb host yourself, as somebody who runs the business in the Middle East and Africa, what are the top three things you need to do? Because I think there's a recovery coming. I think a lot of Airbnb hosts um, got shaken out by, um, by, by COVID. Some have come back, some haven't come back. So the demand isn't always there. But I'm wondering in terms of um, the, the top three things that you did to get to your super host status, what tips could you give us? So I think the first thing is pictures are key. Really make sure you've got great pictures, but that also they, re- they reflect the, um, you know, what the, li- what the listing state, what, you know, what the listing is. I think the second thing is around, you know, description, like really focus on what is unique about the place, but, and, and what can make it special. Um, you know, we were able to, I mean, one of the things that we did is we were able to um, put in solar. So we are somewhat um, load-shedding proof, which is a big, um, um, which is a, a big selling feature. And then just really, really regular communication with our guests. Very good. Velma Cochran, thank you. The regional lead for Middle East and Africa at Airbnb. Um, She is a host herself and amongst the top top lot of Airbnb hosts. Are you still on the Airbnb network? Are you happy? Are you underwhelmed? Are you listening to the discussion with Velma Cochran this evening and going, oh, good, finally they're sorting out stuff that I've been bugging them about or that's been bugging me for years and years and years. It does seem as if they're going to help the cream rise to the top. That's ultimately going to be better for the brand of Airbnb. In a moment, uh, we're going to switch business unusual around with the uh, discussion with the president of the Ford Motor Company because we just have to do that. So Ford after Eyewitness News, Rich Mulholland at Missing Link with Business Unusual in a moment. The Money Show. Business Unusual. 
We'll get there in just a little bit. Suffice to tell you that my producers are trying to get me fired. I think that's what they're trying to do because they've said to Rich Mulholland, you know what you need to talk about? You know what you need to talk about? You need to tell people to not listen to the news. And I thought to myself, that's a really novel way of handing in one's resignation. I suspect it's precisely what my producers are trying to do because by saying to Rich Mulholland, the missing link, that it's a terribly good idea that you come on to a 24-hour news and talk channel and tell people to stop listening to us because that way you will be less anxious. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Producers, what are you trying to do to me? But because we're full of good ideas and new ideas and fresh ideas and we scrap for next, Rich Mulholland, the owner of Missing Link. Why are you telling me to cut my own throat here, Rich Mulholland? Good evening. <laughs> Good evening. So I had no idea we were talking about this, but let's do it. Let's go down oh, this rabbit hole. okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got so, a mail from your people. Your people emailed our people, and so we've oh, both been <laughs> sold down the river tonight. <laughs> well, there we go, but let's do it. So, Bruce, I'll tell you what, I'm, what my thought is, is that... I have a problem with news, and, and let's be honest, what we talk about is not necessarily news. I'm saying the day-to-day -day stressful things. I think that there are certain bits of the news world that we need, and, and the question we need to ask ourselves is the personal relevance element. So how can this news inform decisions that I need to make in my world? And if the answer to the question is, well, they don't, then you're inheriting other humans' stress. And I think that we need to be more selective about the data that we allow to hold real estate in our cognitive minds. And we need to let go of things that we cannot directly control. I agree with you up to a point there, Rich. And I say, I agree with you. We have to choose what we consume. Don't spend your life on Facebook or scrolling through um, the mess that is um, other social media channels and opinions and the nonsense that comes with people's interpretation of news. I would completely concur with you. But I would be more anxious if I was ignorant to what was happening in the world than by knowing what's going on in the world, even on the stuff I can't control. I can't control what's going on in Ukraine. I cannot control what is going on in Gaza. I cannot control uh, what Jerome Powell is going to say on the future direction of inflation and interest rates, but it's stuff I feel I need to know so that I can navigate it better. Why do you think I should be opting out of that clutter? Which, which is, it is clutter, it is noise. Um, and much of that noise and clutter, rather other than engaging with it. So, and I've thought about this a lot. Uh, I've been on a kind of news diet for about a decade now. And uh, I realized that the most important stuff finds its way to me. And so this really came to point, and this is anecdotal. I'll, I'll say this for me is an anecdote, but during the uh, COVID crisis in 2020, everybody was on every single news group, every WhatsApp group. Everybody was trying to get up to the speed information. And I was going down these rabbit holes and I realized, wait a minute, nothing that I spend time with on the, I can't contribute or change anything based on these. If anything is important, my family Facebook group will let me know about it. What I can be focusing on is how can I make my business relevant in this time? And so I went back to my team and I said, guys, I think that we're being distracted. I think our most valuable real estate in our brain is being spent on something we can't control. Let's do our best to go on a news diet and to do our best to try and only focus on information relevant to the stuff that we can change. And we decided to do it. We did it. And, you know, it, it turned out to be really, really great for us. But so many people I spoke to were consciously anxious about things that were out of their modus of control because they live in a world consumed by... 
you know, a war, a conflict that's happening, a global recession, a frustration with the government. But if you look at those three data points, let's say a, a global conflict, a, a, you know, financial downturn or, and frustration with the government, those, those three data points exist at any single time in any place in the world, anywhere in the last decade. All of those would always be true. Well, no, no, Therefore, I, I, I would argue, sorry to interrupt there, Rich, I would no, argue it's been around for the last thousand decades, yes. Right. And so my point is that all we're doing is we're, we're staying in, in the hype cycle of whatever flavor of discontent we want at the moment, and it adds to our anxiety. And if you can remove that, I don't think, I think you'll find that the loss for many, many people, not everybody, but the loss for many people in normal day-to-day jobs by not tapping into the global stress actually gives them more peace of mind because your world becomes smaller. Right now, news gives you access to a really big world of pain. And when you, when you, what we should all be trying to do is to make our worlds smaller and only worry about the things that are, you know, the maybe four or five people yeah. around you. Uh, and so I find it's given me a lot more peace of mind. It's made me, my curiosity get spent on more interesting things for me and my business. No, fair enough. But I mean, how do you know how to respond to your customers' fears and pain points because of what's happening in the world if you are not engaged in that same news cycle, if you're not having the same conversations and not sharing those same fears? Because I wonder what it's like walking into a boardroom and you wonder why the the mood's a bit funny. It's because you've missed out that, you know, one guy's invaded a a neighboring country for argument's sake. Um, Do you not feel disconnected and dangerously so? So first of all, every big thing will find its way to us. Nothing of significance doesn't find... Uh, bad news travels, you know, super, super fast. And so if there is something big that's happened in the world, like it took about 15 minutes for me to learn that Matthew Perry died, you know, and that was global news on, on um, Sunday. And, yeah. uh, you know, the bad news travels fast and will find its way to you. The second thing is when, you, when I walk into a room, the first question I ask everybody always is, and literally this is our default question is, why was today a good time for us to have this meeting? And invariably people want to tell you. So that anything that is big in their world, they'll let you know. And that's how I find out about things. And, and of course I do find out about, I'm not trying to keep my head in the ground. I'm not an ostrich, but I'm saying that I'm not going to consume too much more. I want to deliver, I want to get a lot of information in bite-sized chunks and not to live with detail about things that I can't control. Owner of Missing Link, Rich Mulholland, provocative as always. Nice and thought-provoking, frankly, as well. Um, yeah, I, I feel I feel you, Rich. I really do. I mean, I'm a news junkie, and I do spend far too much worrying about stuff that I can't control, but it is an obsession. Maybe a little bit of Bobby McFerrin, a little bit of Don't Worry, Be Happy. Um, it's fine for a bit, I think, to opt out. It's quite nice between Christmas and New Year. You might might miss out on a tsunami or two or, uh, or some conflagration somewhere. But it is quite refreshing from time to time to opt out for just a little bit. I'll give you that much. Rich Mulholland, owner at Missing Link, Business Unusual on a Wednesday. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106FM. Welcome to the Money Show this evening. What did Mbagela say in traffic? The what the speed limit is not a target. No, it's just a suggestion. This is Joburg. This is Cape Town. Speed limits are suggestions. It's a bit like a stop street or a red traffic light. We don't necessarily obey them. 
We don't necessarily obey them because they are suggestions. They just line them up for us. And we go, oh, well, that looks like a nice idea. And Neil Hill, uh, the president of the Ford Motoring Company for the Africa region, we are seeking them high and low. Um, they want, they're celebrating their 100th anniversary. Um, so plenty of things to celebrate, but that means we're waiting for him. Perhaps producers, we get hold of Wendy. Um, she'll be there for us. She cares. Um, and we'll do a business. And we we'll don't. We've done business unusual. We've already shifted Neil Hill around. Uh, we'll do our consumer ninja feature. And what Wendy's talking about this evening is digital wallet fraud, and she's finding some really scary insights into digital wallet fraud. So we'll pick up on that this evening with Wendy Nola, in addition to Neil Hill, at some point. Um, then later on at half past seven in our shapeshifter feature, I. I <sighs> I think I understand what we're talking about. It is a guy who has started South Africa's first digital mobile virtual network operator. Five words. One, two, three, four, five, six words. Six words that I know what they mean individually. But you put them all together and it's like, what? What, what, what? So that's what we're going to be doing this evening here on The Money Show. And uh, then uh, also this evening, we've done Rich Mulholland, the owner of Missing Link. Rich Mulholland, of course, is massively influential in on the speaker circuit. He helps companies and individuals build presentations um, so that they can communicate better. He did a video the other day, and he was challenged to, and I, what I thought I was going to talk to Rich about this evening, um, was about communication and communication skills, because he did the funny thing I've seen in a very, very long time. And that was he was asked to quit the president's uh, Monday evening spiel uh, when we were celebrating. He did that funny little state of the nation. Um, um, and he, we did that little mini state of the nation and people accused him of politicking and uh, trying to um, steal the World Cup for the ANC's benefit and trying to seize credit for, for the World Cup. But people ain't that stupid. Uh, but the president doing his COVID-style very serious presentation and he was droning on and it is the best way of describing it i don't mean to be disrespectful but he was going and we celebrate this and it is wonderful it is absolutely great and we're so proud of this team that has gone together and they've gone to the world cup and they've defeated and they've won and they've come home they've come home victorious and it is just absolutely wonderful and we're so proud and so happy and rich mulholland's comment as cyril ramaphosa is talking as rich is responding he's doing one of those response videos is Mr. President, tell your face. Tell your face. Because I've never seen a sadder looking happy person. I know the guy's exhausted. He travels too much. Um, but yeah, when you're communicating and you've got this wonderful celebration to share, whether it's your kid's 21st birthday or 18th birthday, or whether it's a wedding or whatever it might be, maybe even at a funeral when you're delivering a eulogy and you're celebrating the life of somebody. And you're talking about happy times. Show happiness on your face. Tell your face what you feel. <laughs> and I just thought that was really, really funny. So for some reason, uh, our wires got crossed. We ended up talking about why you shouldn't listen to the news. Um, and on some days, I would concur. On some days, I would concur. But we do what we believe is a wonderful balance of light and shade. We challenge the status quo. We like to bring top people onto the money show and challenge them and, and see what they're made of. On the Money Show, which is brought to you by Absis CIB, raising a glass to celebrate Absis Pan African excellence. 
Absa is a registered FSP because the Champagne Festival time again this Friday. I think it is. Yeah, I think it's this Friday. Um, it's going to be an enormous Champagne Festival and there's art and there's all kinds of wonderful stuff happening. Um, and uh, yes, it, you'll hear it all here on The Money Show. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Well, South African exporters are struggling to get their products out of the country. Importers facing delays because of the huge problems and the congestion at our ports, which is operated by the failing Transnet. We've learned last night that ships on average are waiting 11 days to dock in our ports, while the global average is around four days in even far busier places. It means additional fees are going to need to be paid to the big shipping companies like MSC and Merck, who are fed up at having their ships at anchor instead of working. One industry that depends on the ports is the Ford Motor Company, which manufactures, of course, near Pretoria. But by way of example, it builds Ford Ranger buckies near Pretoria. And in order for that to happen, the roughly cast engine blocks are imported from the UK via the port at Kabercha. They're transported by rail to Pretoria where they get assembled into the completed trucks. And those completed trucks are then put back on trains and are railed back to Kabercha for export. And it must be an absolute blimmin' shambles based on what we're seeing from the reports. Neil Hill is the president of the Ford Motor Company in Africa. I wonder just how your experience is playing out in that scenario that I just sketched. Neil, good evening. Good evening, Bruce. And lovely to talk to you again. And I was listening to your narrative as, you know, the introduction, and um, I was actually nodding my head in terms of all of the challenges that we're facing in terms of our logistic, logistics um, log jams. And um, yes, it is uh, proving to be an incredibly difficult um, story to navigate. And we often end up in a situation where we we do have parts sitting in containers on those vessels that you talk about at anchor outside Durban's Harbour waiting to be offloaded. And we run the risk of our production line stopping. So we end up having to air freight um, those say additional parts, identical ones to the ones that are in the containers, uh, into South Africa to meet our production demands and keep the production lines running. So it is a bit of a calamity, I think, is a polite way to put it. Well, how's it impacting, though, your ability to deliver on the contracts you have? Because here you are, you're trying to justify keeping factories operating in South Africa. You're given huge incentives from the South African government to do so. But if the logistics don't work, you can't get parts to the factory and you can't get the finished product from the factory to the port for export. You're going to be a breach of contract at some point and your bosses in the United States are going to say, Neil, 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 lovely guy, nice idea. We're just not doing that anymore if, it's, if it doesn't work. Well, Bruce, 100% correct. And I mean, I think the biggest, the biggest risk that we continue to face is the competitiveness of South African produced goods, and in our case, South African produced range of pickups, um, that all of these incremental costs ultimately come into our business and it decreases our competitiveness. You know, previously in South Africa, we were always leveraging the European Free Trade Agreement as a distinct advantage against other markets like, for example, Thailand, which um, has two range of plants that they manufacture vehicles as well. But the Free Trade Agreement gave us a competitive advantage. And what we have seen is that with the escalating costs, both in terms of utilities as well as um, logistics costs, that advantage has been eroded consistently and you know there's times when vehicles that we produce here are more expensive than other markets without a free trade agreement 
Um, so it is a very, very real concern in terms of the ongoing competitiveness of the production of vehicles in South Africa, especially if we look at ours, but also other goods and services or other goods that we produce in South Africa. So some very, very significant headwinds and challenges that we need to address. Uh, but they're not things you can address. The, uh, the Transnet um, needs new management. Um, it's been run into the ground. It is dysfunctional. Um, the, the rail is dysfunctional. The ports are dysfunctional. We've got some of the worst performing ports in the world. How long can your uh, principals in the United States be patient on this particular point while we sort our stuff out? Um, Bruce, I think that if we had a look at it pragmatically, we've got... Um assumptions or we've made decisions in terms of where production sources um, come from. So South Africa is one of them and we're in the value chain. I think the, the reality is that if we see the costs continuing to escalate and we see the logistics getting worse and worse, there will ultimately come a point at which we decide as a company to start shifting production outside of South Africa and we'll see our volumes dropping and we'll see other markets' volumes increasing. Now, that doesn't happen immediately, um, you know, it takes a bit of um, planning and logistics to be able to get the supply base in those markets up to a point that they can meet that incremental demand. But there does come the risk of that at some particular point in time, and it might well not be in the too distant future, that we start seeing some of those decisions being taken, um, and it might start off to be temporary in nature to start off with. But, you know, eventually you get to the point where you you've beaten your head against the brick wall often enough that you actually decide that you need to move away from the definition of insanity and you know, make that hard decision to move production away from a country like South Africa and put it into a country where they have a infrastructure and logistics that works. I mean, is this a realistic scenario that you're considering? Is it, is it yeah, if you've got a, a mood board or whatever you call these things in terms of scenario one, everything works and it's lovely and we keep producing in South Africa in perpetuity. Number two, it gets a bit ropey, but we can make a plan. Number three, leave. Um, have you got those sorts of scenarios mapped out? Um, Bruce, being eternally optimistic about South Africa, I think that we always are, as the South African leadership team here working for Ford Motor Company, we're always fighting to you know, keep production in South Africa, keep people employed and, and, and really making a contribution. And, you know, Ford Motor Company is celebrating our, you know, we're celebrating our centenary. We actually had the function today. Um, and, you know, one of the key things that we really stressed at this function was the fact that we are committed to South Africa. We do see South Africa as a base that, you know, we have had a long, proud history here. Um, and we really determined to make it work. Um, you know, so we're not about to throw the tile in and we, we're really looking for ways that we can continue to make our business viable and we continue to engage. And, um, you know, we believe in the potential um, to, you know, to make this work. But, you know, there does come a point in time where you are, do, you do sometimes feel like you're fighting um, a losing battle. But, you know, we go to battle every single day to keep the South African flag flying high. And we've seen tremendous advancements and progress in the quality of the vehicles that we're producing in spite of the challenges in our team that manage our material planning and logistics have done an incredible job to keep things flowing. Um, but, you know, the warning signs are very, very definitely there, Bruce. No two ways about it. Neil Hill, thank you very much indeed. President of the Ford Motor Company in the Africa region. We're running a huge risk here, everybody. We really are running a huge risk. We've got this phenomenal industry that employs 
tens of thousands of people at factories in different parts of the country. And the Eastern Cape cannot afford to lose any business whatsoever. The big Volkswagen plant there um, in uh, East London, big Mercedes plant. We've got the huge Nissan um, and Ford Motor Company and other manufacturers happening um, around Pretoria, around Roslyn and that sort of area. And if these guys can't get their products to market, their principals in the countries of origin are going to say, well, sorry, you know, sort your stuff out. May use other words. Um, otherwise, we have to stop producing in those countries. And that doesn't happen next week or the week after or even a year from now. But unless we can sort this catastrophe that is Transnet out, um, then, yeah, that is a huge sector that's at risk. The Money Show. Consumer Ninja. Wendy Nola is our consumer ninja. She is on the line to us this evening. And Wendy Nola, just remind me, digital wallet fraud, it's a huge issue, you tell us. And we we spoke about it in August. The Ombudsman for Banking Services was warning about this form of bank fraud, which is becoming rampant. And you've been digging deeper into the world of digital wallet fraud. Um, The problem with this form of fraud is that the fraudster only needs to pretty much trick their victim once in order to go on a spending spree. So they have a victim's stolen credit card details. There's ways and means of getting them. Um, So let's just leave that there for now. So they've got your card number, your expiry date, your CVB number. And they then create um, a Samsung Pay or Apple Pay or Garmin Pay account uh, on their smartphone or their their, um, tablet or whatever. Uh, or their or their watch, very popular watch, um, and then the bank sends a message to the victim, uh, their client, asking them to approve the link. And a lot of people don't understand what that's about. They just approve, think, yeah, okay, that's fine. And what they're doing is then just you know providing open sesame to the fraudster because they can make multiple purchases without the need for any PIN. So when you have a normal credit card purchase, right? There needs to be a pin for every uh, purchase. But with this, once the link is done, it's just spend, 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 mostly at foreign destinations because this is a syndicate issue. Um, and it ends only when the victim discovers what's happening and you know sees those payment notifications and alerts the banks. But if they're not really sharp about checking their SMSs or they're on a plane you know, and haven't got connectivity, the fraudster can actually run up a massive amount of debt in their name before that card is is blocked. So I've had a lot of case studies. The latest one I had was a young Cape Town doctor and her mom actually approached me just after we'd spoken about the Ombudsman for Banking Services alert about this um, in August. And her daughter, two, two um, notifications happened in uh, one afternoon in June and uh, almost 12,000 rand, 11,500 rand of transactions happened and the bank via Apple Pay. And the bank said, no, with Apple Pay, we're not responsible. So I said, listen, the Ombudsman for Banking Services is finding in favor of, of the bank clients, the victims in all these cases because there's some shortcomings they feel on the part of the bank's handling of all of this. So lodge a complaint. And before it was even lodged as a proper case, the ombudsman's staff went to the bank and the bank said, oh, okay, we'll pay you back. So she got 11,500 rand back and back. And what I want to talk about 
Now, Bruce, is the update. Why am I talking about this again? I checked with the Ombudsman for Banking Services, well, with the Ombudsman herself, Brianna Stain, earlier, and she confirmed that the bank has been set, that the that her office has been settling all these digital wallet cases in favour of consumers. Listen to this: 154 complaints came to the office uh, since January. The office has closed 132 of them, 22 still active, but all those ones settled have been in favour of the of the consumers. They've been meeting with the banks, sharing their, their um, uh, thinking on, on this fraud and their view. Um, and since then, the, the complaints have slowed dramatically because the banks are choosing to settle with their clients without them having to go to the OBS. And they've recovered a total of 2.5 million rand in respect of those cases, just the ones that they've dealt with. 19,000 rand on average per complaint. So I've said, well, what is your thinking on this? Why are you holding the banks liable if the consumers are unwittingly agreeing to the fraudster linking their blooming device to to them, the victim's credit card? And she said, well, it's a question of mandate. The bank needs to act on the mandate and instructions of the client that is to pay and yes, the, the victims are erroneously, you know, giving the bank permission to link the fraudulent device to their credit card. But first of all, the messages need to be clearer. The OBS says they people are not clear on what's going on, and they're sort of just approving it. Um, so you know, it is a fairly fairly new form of of payment. So um, yeah. those messages need to be clearer, and also. The mandate is to link the device, not for payments to go willy-nilly indefinitely without further notification. So the Ombuds Office is saying there needs to be another or extra layers of security for every payment made via digital wallet as a traditional credit card purchases. There needs to be a specific instruction to your bank to make the payment, entering a PIN or whatever. So um, it's quite gratifying because the banks are, are saying, yes, okay, so they've Settling those cases while in the back. Now, this is a weird thing. I'm not too sure if you can hear Wendy Nola, but I can't hear Wendy Nola. Um, so, Wendy, are you still with us, Earth to Wendy? Um, if somebody could let me know, because I'd hate to be interrupting her, but it is astonishing, isn't it? I mean, these new payment devices are absolutely wonderful. They really are good. Um, and they are spectacular in the way in which they function and the way in which they report. So um, the, the fraudsters are getting bank account details. You are aiding and abetting it. Uh, in the meantime, says Wendy, what you need to do is be very, very wary of anything, an SMS that comes to linking your device. Just don't say yes. And if you do suffer losses as a result of this fraud, you must lodge a complaint with the office for uh, for the ombudsman for banking services if your bank won't reimburse your losses. So you need to do that on your behalf. But yeah, this is up to you. And it is that thing of being horribly aware and horribly mistrusting. I mean, I'm getting a lot of spam at the moment. I don't know if it's Christmas season. I don't know if um, how it's getting past the goalie of the, the office server. But I'm getting a huge amount of spam. And it's clearly spam. It is absolute garbage. When you are interacting, and we all need to be very aware of this with your bank or with somebody who purports to be your bank, you need to engage your, your brain very, very strongly and be suspicious of push notifications from your bank. And if you're unsure, don't act on it. Phone the call center. Each of these banks has got a call center. Make sure that you get through to the call center and you ask the question. And you alert them to the fact that I think there may be a scam going on here. Um, the Money Show. Shapeshifters.
This feature this evening is somebody who's uh, in an industry that I think I understand. That is about as good as it's going to get, I'm afraid, because we're going to chat to Kelvin Collett this evening, the founder and chief executive of a company called Melon Mobile. Have you used Melon Mobile? I was not aware of Melon Mobile until I came across this with my producers in the last couple of days. Uh, Kelvin was in the IT sector, became an entrepreneur, and for 22 years has worked in companies like MTN and Accenture, the AA even, and Getronics. And then he created Melon Mobile, South Africa's first mobile virtual network operator. Now, Calvin Collett, before we get into the meat and potatoes uh, of the conversation, I, I would like you to translate something for me, please, because Melon Mobile, and I'm reading again, is South Africa's first fully digital mobile virtual network operator. Now, I know what fully means. I know what digital means, so a tick on digital, mobile, tick, virtual, tick, network, tick, operator, tick. Individually, I know what those words mean, but when you put those words together, I lose my grasp and ability to speak the English language. So what is a fully digital mobile virtual network operator? I'm exhausted even saying it. Chris, how are you? Um, yeah, a fully digital network operator is basically it's a, a mobile network, so think MTN, Vodacom, etc. Without the need to physically go into store, you can run everything on an app. We've got the ability to self-reca, activate your, your services. You can build your own plan. So it really takes the, the digital aspect of of telco and puts it inside a single single entity and that's what we've done so we've tried to really simplify all of those different words into a single journey that is ultimately much simpler than the traditional mobile journey so you you don't need to have any towers you don't need to have you don't need to worry about the connectivity issues the huge capital expenditure that is required to keep them going the batteries um for the generators and the backup diesel that has to go to the generators because people keep stealing the batteries um all of this sort of stuff is not your concern it's not your problem because you just piggyback off the infrastructure of others correct yes 100% so we focus on on being customer facing making sure we build propositions and pricing for uh, what makes the customer customer happy and build journey, but ultimately simplify the entire process. But you're right; we don't need to worry about the network, the infrastructure, batteries, uh, etc. No, and that's and that's wonderful. I mean, I, I, how many competitors have you got? Because you describe yourself as the first of these fully digital mobile virtual network operators. Um, are there many players in this field? So not in terms of digital, and um, we certainly see ourselves as the first uh, and only in South Africa that is truly fully digital. Um, there are quite a few um, mobile virtual network operators, but um, they're ultimately just uh, different branded versions of the existing mobile network. So typically the same journey, you still need scratch cards, prepaid, um, and so on and so forth. We completely changed the way, way mobile works. So um, nothing in terms of the traditional way. You don't need to go into the shops. Um, you're not given you know, traditional packages where you have to buy 500 minutes and 5 gigs and 500 SMSs uh, at a single price. You can completely configure your individual package per person. 
And, you know, if you have a SIM card, you can get up and running in five minutes. So it takes away that, you know, the pain and suffering, having to sit inside a, a store uh, and go through all the, the, the rigmarole that goes there. So really simplifying entire, entire journey. And that's, I think, the role of virtual network operators uh, across the world, not even just in South Africa, is to take, to be more customer facing and trying to be better at the, the customer end and let the, the big mobile operators focus on the big CapEx intensive stuff and really making sure that the networks are, are good quality and, and serve the, the customer as well. So you can piggyback not only on other people's networks and other people's infrastructure, but you can also then um, utilize, obviously, the handsets that the person got as part of their contract. Once their contract's finished, they now fully own their telephone, so they can use it for what they want to. And they've got a SIM card that's been issued to them by a Celsi or a Vodacom or an MTN. You can kind of take that over as well, can you? Yes, 100%. Um, The porting process has been been available in South Africa for a while. And I think, you know, we've really tried to make that a slick process. So moving from one operator across to ourselves, it's also all done through the app. It's a two-click process and happens same day. So you're absolutely able to do that. And then, you know, we launched uh, eSIMs two and a half weeks ago. So that takes away the need to have a physical SIM. So you can still use your existing device. And as long as your device is iPhone 11 and up, um, your Samsung sort of S20 and up, uh, your, your up-end Huawei ranges and, and a few of the, the other brands out there, you're able to get an eSIM. And that really does simplify everything because, you know, even if you are in contract, as an example, you could run two SIMs, which is quite rare um, in South Africa in terms of the, the up-end, but certainly a new way of operating. So you could use, you know, your existing provider for voice and say Melon as a, as a data SIM. As a secondary thing, sure. uh, as a secondary provider, so it does give a lot more flexibility to the consumer. Why has it be taken so long for somebody to create an eSIM in South Africa? I, I you know, got my phone and I went to my service provider and I said, "Okay, fine, let's activate the eSIM," and they looked at me as if I was asking to do a drug deal or something. Um, <laughs> and you say that you've only activated this in the last two weeks. What's been the obstacle? <laughs> I think the, the important thing here was to get the the process right. You know, I think it's exactly to your point. You know, we see with the big big mobile networks at the moment, you can get eSIMs, right? But you have to go in store, and you've got to scan a physical QR code, and they have to have stock inside those stores. Now, in my view, that defeats the whole entire object of an eSIM. eSIM should be digital. You should not have to go to go to store. You should not have to wait to you know wait for stock, etc it should be completely um, available online. Now, that has not been available. So we took a while because we wanted to make sure that that journey was slick. Um, and like I said, you know, we, we pride ourselves on the fact that you can sign up for an ESM in six minutes. Um, and if you, if, you, you know, if you take a little bit longer, it's 11 minutes. But it's 11 minute process to go from not being, uh, never touching the Mellon network to, to, to being a fully fledged Mellon customer. So that's how ICESIM should work and that's how, how the process should work. So, you know, anything but that, in my view, is just not, it's not how to vote or not, not, not by design. 
Yeah, it's kind of weird. And the rest of the world has got these things. You never have to go to a shop. As you say, you never have to actually stand in a queue ever again because everything is so much more automated. And I do feel like we're kind of stuck in the dark ages and you're, you're bringing us out. We may be kicking and screaming on our way out, Calvin. Um, but we, I think we're coming out of the dark ages. What's uptake been like? Do people relate to what it is that you're doing? Certainly 20 years ago, people would have looked at you as if you're mad. But, you know, in our, increasingly digital world i wonder just if this is time is look we're seeing some fantastic uptake i think bruce one of the typical things and and it's it's not just south africa you know i, I was in valencia spain two weeks ago and um, speaking to other virtual network operators out there and one of the things that we have to do first is to build trust right so um they love the product they love the concept they love the simplicity they love the flexibility they love all of those things but there's a trust factor missing. Now, we're six months old, so the questions are, will these guys be around in two years? You know, can we trust it? Will they take our money, et cetera, et cetera. So um, to answer your question simply, the, the uptake has been fantastic, um, but, but our biggest challenge now is to make sure that the consumers can trust us. And by providing a product where you can sign up in six minutes, it shows a legitimate product, and there's no technical issues, and you can support us. Um, it can, and it is a well-supported product. So we, we, we're finding this out and, uh, you know, we're very happy with where we are in terms of, of uptake. And I can only sit going um, strength to strength. I mean, we break records every single day. So, you know, there is an appetite in South Africa for something different. Um, we talk about it every day. You know, if you take mobile, uh, which started 28 years ago in South Africa, very little has changed in, in terms of mobile in 28 years, in terms of the sign-up process, the product. Yeah, sure. You've, uh, you've gone from 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, etc. But there's a technology advancement in terms of the customer acquisition, the, the customer service, and those kind of things. There's very little change in the last 28 years. And, you know, we just felt that there was a better way to mobile and the customer, putting the customer at the center of it and pushing the customer support um, onto an app. You know, and apps are mature these days. Smartphones are smart. Um, so, so why not leverage that technology? And I think that's what we've done pretty well. Calvin Collett is my guest this evening, the founder and chief executive at Mellon Mobile, neatly dodging the question on the number of sign-ups, but that's to be expected. We'll pick up on that, because I'm going back there, um, and other issues coming up in just a moment. Calvin Collett, our shapeshifter on The Money Show on this Wednesday evening. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Like Elon Musk before him, Calvin Collett, founder and chief executive at Mellon Mobile, on the line to us from Durban, went to Pretoria Boys High, different generation to Elon Musk, and not spending $45 billion on Twitter. But you've had a, a really interesting career, starting out in medical aid and software support, doing stuff for Y2K. You worked with Accenture. They seconded you for a while to the AA. And then very sadly, in 2002, your dad died. And you took a sabbatical, a very early sabbatical, because your dad was a, a very active businessman. I mean, he had interest in farming and hospitality and uh, finance in Zimbabwe and Louis Trichard of all places. So clearly a very influential guy. And you moved into that environment, I think, for, for quite some time. And that environment did quite a lot to shape you in the way in which you think about the problems of people in fairly remote areas, fairly inaccessible areas to traditional mobile services. Yeah, Bruce, for sure. I mean, I think I think what was nice about the, the, that that period was 
being able to connect with people on the ground with the real challenges, right? Because you, you sometimes sit in the, in the urban areas and, you know, you relate that to the problems of South Africa. And what you realize is the problems of South Africa are far, far more, more widespread and connectivity is one of the biggest challenges uh, anyway. Um, and I, I still believe that connectivity and data specifically is the biggest opportunity for South Africa's growth. I mean, it's, it's the key to education, and I believe education is the key to, to upliftment in poverty. So if you start um, as bad as a base and you can use data, I mean, with YouTube and, and, and Udemy and all sorts of other online courses, online universities, et cetera, you're able to get at a far cheaper um, cost you're able to get access to, to information and ultimately school yourself. So I do believe that. And, you know, th- those years were, were good in terms of, of just taking a step back and, and just really understanding what, what's required out there. And, and, and in terms of the mobile space, just understanding that, you know, South Africa does have a world-class mobile network um, infrastructure both, uh, yeah. across all four, all four networks. And, you know, it's how do we leverage that in a, in a smarter way. And that's really the, I was looking at network speeds in Santon the other day and getting 400 megabits a second download speed and going, is that really necessary? I mean, it's lovely. It's really good. But I wonder yeah. if we haven't over-engineered our network a bit uh, because I've suggested it to the chief executive of MTN last night. And he was slightly taken <laughs> aback because people like to complain about internet speeds and everything else. But in many parts of the world, these sort of things are capped at 80, 90, 100 megabits a second, and everyone seems to cope. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's, it's a very valid point. I often, you know, everyone wants a gig line at home, and, and there's absolutely no need. I mean, I, I still... But this is typical telco. Um, I think it's it's something that we do incredibly badly. I mean, why do we sell 5G as an example? Why do we sell 4G? Why do we sell ESOs? You know, it's the, it's the why. So why do you need 4G so that it's faster, uh, lower latency, etc.? We should we should be selling the why, not the the technology. So, <clears throat> um, but to your point, you know, a 50 meg line is more than sufficient for the average whole household and average business, etc. And right down to 10 meg, depending on what you utilize. So um, you certainly don't need 400 meg a second. Um, but, you know, those kind of speeds will diminish as capacity on those towers increase. Um, and you'll start to get less and less speeds uh, because it's all, the, it's all guided by spectrum, etc. So, I mean, you go from Louis Trichard, the epicentre, of course, of the world, um, and um, in collaboration <laughs> with farmers and all sorts of weird and wonderful people in that part of the world, you end up um, involved in the VoIP market, the voiceover IP market. This is 2008, of course, and you relocated the business then to Four Ways. And that was a kind of a, a re-entry, I suppose, into into the cut and thrust of the corporate world because that's MTN. And when you work within, uh, I suppose, the corporate environment long enough, you start to see opportunities and those opportunities presented themselves to you, if not on a silver platter, certainly you saw things that other people were not seeing. What was it that you witnessed that said to you, hold on a second, there's an opportunity outside of the mothership here? Yeah, I mean, the nice thing is about working in an organization like that is, you know, they really do have amazing, amazing people they work there and the technology is great. Um, and, but I just felt that things could be done better, right? Um, and, you know, the, the project that I worked on specifically was um, 
uh, was Smart Village. So we took uh, an ISP in acquisition and we turned it into Supersonic. That was uh, one of MTN's first sub-brands. And that was a great project. And just seeing what you could do with the power of the MTN brand in that specific scenario, um, I just felt that MTN could do so much more in terms of, of customer service and so on and so forth. But, you know, COVID hit and, and various other um, challenges at the time. And I just felt that post-COVID, the user behavior in terms of digital, you know, uh, let's take ordering groceries online. I mean, prior to COVID, it was it was pretty slow, the uptake. But post-COVID, it, it, it's a daily occurrence, right? So, and all the, the, the major grocery uh, retailers are now are doing um, online, online grocery shopping. So I just felt that the time was then and I wasn't going to wait around. And I felt like the, the opportunity was now and we needed to take it, take it immediately. So <clears throat> having been on the inside um, and then looking internationally. So it wasn't just South Africa. You know, we looked internationally and there were other examples of where digital telcos um, were spinning up. And I just loved the concept and, and, the, and the ease and simplicity of what they were doing. And... Yeah, hence Miller Mobile was born. You know, we, we took the leap of faith and uh, really built the thing from, from the ground up, but with the customer at the center of everything we did. Um, and I think that shows that if you, if you go on our user journey and you see what we've done, it's, it's really trying to simplify the customer journey uh, in everything we've done. So often in the world of fintech, for example, you have people who get frustrated within the corporates because they're not fast enough and innovative enough. So they see a gap, they go out, they build what they were irritated their corporate wasn't building. Um, and they then go and sell it back to the corporate. Is that what you're intending to do here at some point? I mean, I guess that that, that is a, a potential outcome. Um, you know, we also not, I mean, to give an idea in terms of, I mean, so that's because we've got 101 million uh, SIM cards in the market. It's a 200 billion rand industry. So, you know, whether or not that is the, the final outcome, you know, we focused on getting 0.5% to, to well, between 0.5 and 1% of the market. So that would be, you know, uh, a 1 to 2 billion rand company. That's a fantastic company. It's, I think it's very achievable in this market. And I think that's, that's the guiding principle of our business case. Um, you know, if, a, if one of the big operators, you happen to, to do an acquisition, um, that, that's great, and we will certainly be open to it. But our business case certainly goes far beyond that. Uh, and yes, uh, one also wonders then uh, how adaptable this is if it is virtual and it is all dependent on an app and it's dependent on smartphone access. This, and I, I use this term so advisedly, should be fairly simple um, to take into other markets be where there are cell phone networks, which is 99.99% of the world by now, surely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just coming out of, as I say, my trip to Valencia, it was a, an MBNO conference, and I did a, a, a talk there, and it was fantastic to see. I mean, we've got the, the number of uh, inquiries, inquiries we've got about taking Melon Mobile into other markets is fantastic. And it's because, you know, we've really focused on a packaged product, right? So right from the marketing to the technology, the app, the, you know, every single bit of this product has been curated um, for reuse. So absolutely, I mean, we, we're excited about the, the opportunity to take this globally.
Um, and that's absolutely wonderful. It really is. And you can do it uh, again virtually, I suppose. You don't need to be in country. If, you know, you might want to put up a call center or something um, if, if there needs to be customer support. But a lot of the stuff is, is managed digitally anyway. You get yourself a bot, get yourself some AI engagement, and, and off you go. I mean, I don't mean to oversimplify these things. I realize this is um, life-changing but, but stuff. But it, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, your customer support, once again, I mean, South Africa is a great place for customer support. You know, I mean, we've got a lot of BPO in this country. And the one thing we've done different to you, Bruce, I mean, I, I'm a big proponent of digital, but I'm also cautious of over-digital. So, you know, I, we've got in our call center, we've got real-life humans um, behind uh, WhatsApp, Facebook, Messenger, and Instagram. We do have a call center. But less than one percent of our calls actually, or of our interactions, are via calls. Everything else is via digital, so WhatsApp, Facebook, etc. So, you know, if you take this internationally, I wouldn't change that model much, right? I mean, it would be depending on the language in those countries, we might need additional people. But if it's English speaking, we could do a lot of that support from South Africa, which would be great for South Africa from an employment perspective. But then also, you know, it's. It, it just simplifies the entire business case and, and proposition going forward. Have you got the proposition mapped out? Is there, a, I don't know, a digital whiteboard in your head or a whiteboard somewhere in an office that people can look at and squiggle lines on to say, right, our first market is going to be Spain because that's where we were or whatever the case might be. Um, is it mapped out yet? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we've, got, we, we've done quite a lot of work in terms of the different markets where the big opportunities are. Um, and I think that's, that's the exciting part is that we, we really know where, the, where there's big opportunity and where the, the, where the digital telcos just have not, uh, just not taken off or, or not actually been implemented. So there's big openings and big opportunities out there. Here's the obvious question, of course. If you're doing it, why aren't other people doing it? If it's so, um, again, easy in inverted commas to do uh, what's holding the rest of the world back what have you got that they don't bruce i think you know it starts right at the beginning i mean we when we went out there uh we're looking for a tech stack so i think it all starts with technology and we wanted a tech stack that could ultimately do this from end to end and telco tech stacks are complex right so you tend to have you know 10 or 15 different systems at an absolute minimum and put together to make this thing work. And I think that's where most people go wrong, is that it gets terribly expensive, and then integration takes out of a long time. So we were very focused on making sure that we went out there and got the right partners right up front, and we put that together as a package. And I think that's why the Mellon Mobile proposition is so great, because it's, uh, I mean, the best way to describe it is it's everything in a box, with a nice little ribbon on top, and we've done all the hard work behind it. Um, you know, we saw it, as I say, I'm going back to Valencia again, but it's nice to see international guys, and, and this is from, you know, Europe, US, et cetera, where they looked at what we've done, like, wow, this is unique. They hadn't seen a lot of what we've done, and it's because, you know, we really curated it from the ground up, whereas a lot of guys are actually taking internal tech stacks and trying to re-engineer them uh, to actually deliver, whereas we went right from the ground up. What a wonderful tale. Thank you, Kelvin Collett, the founder and chief executive at Mellon Mobile.